0: So, here we are again, back in the sanctuary. We are trying to utilize as much of our technological abilities as possible during this very unusual time. I'm so grateful for Trey, and for Brittany, for Justin Merrick, for Kevin West, and all those who are working behind the scenes to make the video parts work. We know that there's been a few audio issues. If you're on the main page, they might both play at the same time, so you need to press pause on one of them. But we're working them out, and we will continue to get better. That's part of sanctification. You get better as you go. We're good Methodists. But um, it, it has been a unique morning, once again. Kathy and, and Trey and I were just commenting. When you're doing this for, like through a camera, you don't have the live congregation here, it almost makes it more intimidating because you want to make sure all your words are just right. And sometimes I trip over my words thinking, oh no, that's now on the internet for forever. Which technically it is every week. But I'm always focused on the people that are here. But I give thanks that we are still worshiping together. We're still singing the praises of God. We are still hearing from the word of the Lord. And with all of that in mind, we have heard our gospel lessons read this morning. And now let us jump into our sermon. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, thank you, Kathy. Appreciate it. You know, whenever I teach or preach about the Apostle Peter, there's somebody, and usually several somebodies, who come up after the sermon to tell me that Peter is their favorite person in the Bible. Not just their favorite apostle, not just their favorite New Testament character, their favorite person in the Bible. They say, Peter, you know, he's real. He's a lot like us. He's he's just real. And I think that usually means that Peter messed up a lot. Just like us, we tend to mess up a lot. I could give you an entire sermon, a litany of all the ways in which Peter made mistakes throughout scripture. But today, we'll just use a few. It was Peter who ruined the transfiguration. Whenever he and James and John went with Jesus on top of the mountain, and then all of a sudden, Jesus was shining, glowing in the light. It was Peter that in the middle of that said, you know what, you're lucky I'm here, Jesus. I can go gather some materials and I can make this moment even better. I will build three houses, one for you and Moses and Elijah and we'll just stay here for forever. It was also Peter who had heard Jesus predicting the crucifixion and he told Jesus, that sort of thing will never happen as long as I'm around. I'll take care of everything. And In the book of Acts, it was Peter who refused to eat at a feast Jesus made because it included certain unclean foods. Over and over in the New Testament, Peter walks up to Jesus and says, Now, Jesus, you are doing this all wrong. And this, I think, gives us comfort. It gives us comfort to know that there's somebody like us who thinks Jesus is doing it all wrong because, let's be honest... There are plenty of times where we think Jesus is doing it all wrong. I don't know what you think Jesus has been doing wrong, what it looks like in your life. Maybe you think Jesus got it wrong when he told us to turn the other cheek. Maybe you think Jesus got it wrong when he told us to love our enemies. Maybe you think the secret to happiness is to worry about the sorts of things Jesus told us not to worry about, like what you're gonna wear or what you're gonna eat. That last one, it really hits home this week, doesn't it? This last week has seemed like a very good time for me to stock up on Oreos and do a little online wardrobe shopping. You see, Peter lived in the real world. He often thought Jesus was wrong, and this is why we like Peter. Because we think that we also live in the real world, and this world that Jesus is describing It's a lot like a fantasy. But I bet that if you told Peter, hey brother, you and I, we're a lot alike. I bet Peter would stand up and try to fight you for such an outrageous accusation. Because Peter didn't want to be like you. He didn't want to be like everybody else. He didn't want to be like anybody. If you pay any attention to the scriptures and the life of Peter, you see that Peter wanted to be the best. He didn't want to be just like everybody else. Peter was a man who couldn't shake the need to prove that he loved Jesus more than everybody else. He loved Jesus better than everybody else. If you told Peter that he was real, he would probably have thought you meant he was the only real apostle, the only real follower of Jesus in this posse of phonies and casual fans. When Jesus walked on the water, it was Peter that jumped out of the boat to go meet him. When Jesus appeared at the lake shore, it was Peter who swam naked just to get there first. Peter didn't do half measures. Peter was all in or all out. The Gospel of John tells us about this time that Jesus came to Peter at the Last Supper offering to wash his feet. And Peter jumped up and said, absolutely not, Jesus. I should be the one who's washing your feet. Never mind that Jesus had already washed several other disciples' feet. But Peter was convinced that this was some sort of test. Peter thought that he was the only one who had the right answer and that he needed to wash Jesus' feet. And so Peter made his offer and Jesus refused his grand gesture. Jesus wouldn't have it. Jesus says to Peter, Unless I wash your feet, you can have no part in me. Having failed a test that wasn't really a test, Peter decides he'll make it right by doing a complete 180. He says, Okay, fine, Jesus, but don't just wash my feet. Wash every part of me, my head, my hands. And again, Jesus refuses. Jesus says, Only your feet need to be washed. Because Jesus never asked Peter to be the best. Jesus only asked Peter to listen. The title of this sermon series we've been in is called Power and Passion. For the past few weeks, we've been journeying through Lent, recognizing these characters that have power and how they've used it for good or not. And how this is leading us towards the passion of the Christ, how in our own lives we have power. Power and how in which, what are the ways in which we can match our power, our influence with those things for which we have great passion. In our first week, we talked about Pontius Pilate. Afterwards, we talked about Miss Pilate. We weren't talking about passionate followers of Jesus. We were talking about people who were on the fringe of the story. Last week, we talked about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And they kinda liked Jesus. They secretly followed Jesus, but they were not real disciples like Peter was. Peter is the real deal. Peter is passionate. He is eager, and he is restless, and he is always ready for action. He is determined to be the best follower of Jesus that he can be. Peter wants to play the part of the great hero in all the myths and stories we love. Peter is Ulysses, the warrior never to yield. Peter is like Steve Jobs, who once said his goal was to put a dent in the universe. Peter is like Elon Musk. I don't know if you all heard this week, but Elon Musk said that he's going to make all the ventilators that America needs he tweeted that out earlier this week. I'm sure he'll get that done as soon as he, he gets us to Mars like he promised and gives us all self driving cars and, and then is able to move us around the vac- country in vacuum sealed bullet trains. That is somebody who wants to be the hero of the story, right? That's Peter's kind of passion, though. When Jesus says, One of you will betray me, Peter says, Not it. Not going to be me. Not this guy. And when Jesus says, leave your sword behind, Peter brought his sword anyway. And Peter was proud to have brought his sword because when all these soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter was ready. He drew his sword against the crowd and he was ready to die in a blaze of glory. But once again, Jesus refused Peter's grand gesture. He told him to put the sword away. You see, Peter had been so in love with the idea of loving Jesus that he never really listened to what Jesus was trying to say. And so a few hours later, Peter found himself with nobody to impress, alone in a courtyard. The Pharisees were inside asking Jesus deadly questions, and Jesus did not bother to try to amaze them or to outwit them. Jesus gave plain, truthful answers. You heard what I said, I stand by what I said, I have nothing to add to it, I have nothing to hide. But outside, Peter realized that once again, he messed everything up. He decided in an instant that he had backed the wrong passion project. And so he course corrected like he always did, doing a total 180. He said, I do not belong to him. Peter insisted it over and over again. People asked Peter, Aren't you with him? He said, No, that's not me. You got the wrong guy. You know, we say we love Peter because we think he's real. But in the end, we learned that he was actually faking it the whole time. I bet this is not the only time, though, that you have fallen for a faker. It's not the only time I've fallen for a faker. I bet you've been fooled by someone who made the biggest and loudest promises. They told you, don't worry, I've got this. And they said it was such force and with such a, a big smile that you would have never guessed you were being hoodwinked, that the emperor actually has no clothes. In fact, I bet there's been at least once or twice in your life where you have been that person where you have been the person convincing others of your power of your control of your ability to make everything work out just perfectly I'm willing to bet that some of you have made big promises grand gestures and that you believed them when you made them it wasn't an intentional lie you weren't trying to mislead anyone but then you experienced that sinking feeling in your stomach that comes when you realize you actually had no idea what you were talking about, and that you couldn't save all the things you thought you could, you couldn't fix all the things you thought you could. You see, a lot of times we make grand gestures and loud arguments, not just because we're trying to fool someone else, but because we are trying to fool ourselves. We are trying to convince ourselves that we can do one great thing that will make everything all right. We are afraid to discover that we're actually not the best, or that we're not the most important, or that we're not the greatest at the thing for which we think we are the greatest. We are trying to justify our existence by coming up with these grand gestures. We think the world won't care about us or need us if we can't be the most or the best something. What is that for you? What have you convinced yourself that all of your worth is based on. Maybe you're trying to be the best provider for your children. Maybe you're trying to be the top salesperson at your firm. Maybe you're trying to be the funniest person in the room. Michael actually tries a lot of that one, but he's often in rooms with me, so it doesn't work out too well for him. Not having people to laugh makes jokes really difficult. I tell you, every time I check Facebook, I see a lot of my pastor friends posting different videos of them doing sermons, especially during this time of online content. I'm thinking, I, I can't, if I can't put out the best, I might as well not even bother. Or if I'm gonna put something out, it better be the best. Maybe you've been trying to be the person that everyone in your neighborhood could count on this week. All the kids can come over to your house. You'll cook all the meals. You'll take care of everybody. Maybe you know that you aren't the best all around, but you still believe that you're the best or the most important at something. You want to believe that that one big moment, that one heroic act, that one outstanding characteristic will make up for everything else. If you do one thing good enough, maybe you can make up for all the little ways we tell Jesus he is wrong every day. You see, our social actions and the ways in which we view ourselves are directly related to the way in which we view Jesus. If you are one of those people who love Peter because he keeps it real, and if this whole sermon is getting a little more real for you, I do have some good news. We can walk away from Peter's story with something better than just saying, yeah, Peter's a lot like me, he messed up too. The good news today is not that Peter kept it real, the good news is that Jesus keeps his promises. The good news is that Jesus' promises have power. Jesus' promises might not be loud and bombastic and grand gesture like Peter's, but they are more real than anything. The very presence of Jesus on earth was God's way of keeping a promise he made to his people. God was not content to simply shout, I love you the most from afar. In Christ, God was becoming obedient to the laws of love. Philippians 2 says he became obedient even unto death by becoming Jesus. God was fulfilling his promises to us. Jesus' life and his death by themselves were fulfillment of God's faithful promises to humanity, to everyone, to all the world. Nowadays, we think of the cross as a grand gesture because we know what the cross accomplished, but when it actually took place, it was far from that. Nobody at the time in which Jesus was crucified saw this as some big grand gesture. They saw this as a failure. They saw this as a humiliation. In Jesus' time, dying on a cross meant you were canceled. You were forgotten. You weren't the best at anything because you were crucified. The cross was not some grand gesture of friendship and forgiveness. It was the real way to be humiliated and humbled beyond belief for anybody that experienced it. And God took an act of humiliation and transformed it into good news the best news is that christ's power is so marvelous that it can turn in something that completely looks humiliating into something incredibly powerful god can transform something that everyone else sees as worthless and defeat and failure and make it become triumphant make it become the very thing through which the entire world is saved. If Jesus is real, then the smallest goodnesses are even better, more real than the grandest of gestures. God can do more through what we all see as completely ordinary by transforming it into something with great power. Those things we do we don't think matter very much might be the very things that matter most to God. That moment when you hung in there this week to help with math homework as your child was crying about not being able to complete the assignment, that moment when you made their life 5% better, that 5% is more real than any grand gesture you could come up with that extra work you did to try to make life easier for a coworker by teaching them how to use Zoom, by sending somebody a thank you card, that moment, that goodness, that is what God made us for right there. That's the stuff that will outlast heaven and earth and become your treasure in God's eternal kingdom. If God's goodness is real, and God's kingdom is eternal, then the real you, the part of you that was made in God's own image, no matter how small it seems, that will be the thing that will ring into eternity. Jesus's power is so real, it can turn us fakers, like Peter, trying to do the grandest of gestures into the actual real thing. Jesus knew who Peter was. He knew what Peter's passions were. He knew they were self-regarding, cowardly, unreliable, downright flaky. But there on that lakeshore, he turned him into a shepherd. In John chapter 10, earlier in the story, Jesus told a parable about the good shepherd and the hired hand. The good shepherd, Jesus says, will lay down his life for his sheep, but the hired hand runs away when the work is too dangerous or too difficult. Peter had heard that sermon way back when. And the night when Jesus was arrested, we found out Peter had been the hired hand all along. But there on that day, on that lake shore, Peter sees Jesus after he was raised from the dead and Jesus is inviting him to be the shepherd. Three times Peter had denied Jesus. So Jesus taught him to love one step after the other. If you love me, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus was taking care of his flock and asking Peter to do the same, to stay close at hand, to be there for the ordinary days, not just for the grand gestures. That was scary for Peter because he lived his life based on the big moment, and Jesus was asking him to be there for every moment. But it was also the thing that was most powerful for the work that God did through Peter. It was the chance to embrace everything he had always run away from, from commitment and humility and the the steady faithfulness that Jesus gives us. Christ was calling Peter to embrace all of that. And there on that lakeshore, Jesus offered Peter the most powerful and unspectacular gift. Love, friendship, forgiveness, obedience, commitment. These things that we often forget about every day that have become ordinary are actually the things that have the most transformational power in the entire world. Nothing about the offer Jesus made was grand except for the one who was making it. To become a shepherd, Peter had to give up his idealistic picture of the kingdom and accept the real kingdom of God. There's a Scottish philosopher named John McMurray, who once said, illusory religion, the kind that fades, says, fear not, God will make sure none of the things you fear will happen to you. But real religion says, fear not. The things you're afraid of are quite likely to happen, but they are nothing to be afraid of. I don't know that there's a better time during my pastoral ministry to hear that quote to hear that word, to receive that message. The days ahead may not be as easy as the loudest and most optimistic voices promised us. We are learning that our salvation will not come through grand gestures, but through commitment and steady faithfulness during these days ahead. The hardest thing about social distancing is that it calls for unspectacular obedience. If social distancing works, we'll hardly notice it. Our friendships won't have a big party with great photos, our commitment won't look like a big crowd that gets in the Guinness Book of World Records. But it, like so many of our ordinary acts of faithfulness, are what real power in Christ actually looks like. This form of faithful obedience is our way of caring for the least. It's our way of feeding the sheep, of being the shepherds, of caring for the people God cares for. But of all the endless pebbles of obedience that lay out this path toward sanctification, I pray that we will see this road ahead of us not as just two or three large stones of great actions in our lives, but of a road littered with obedience and faithfulness, recognizing that even the smallest of gestures paves that way for the world to experience the goodness of God. And if the real things really are eternal that we do not need to be afraid in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen